0: Our reading from God's Word this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're looking today at a very important moment in redemptive history for the people of Israel, a moment where David officially takes the reins of the work of king over the people of Israel and the day where he renews the presence of ...of the Lord in the midst of the assembly of Israel. As we look at this text together, I trust that you will see this is both a terrible and wonderful moment. In fact, I've titled the message, The Terribly Wonderful Presence of God. Because you will see something that is terrible, striking terror. And you will see something that is wonderful... Bringing encouragement. And when we walk with the Lord, open to who he is and what it is he's committed to do, we will experience both of those realities together. So with that in mind, let's pay attention to his word as we hear it read, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah. And Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah in the place that is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David that the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord. With all his might, David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished the offering, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings... He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, well, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we now ask for your presence to come and to show us from this word who you are. As we pray that prayer, we acknowledge it is a bold one. For your presence in this passage shows us that you come in power and in holiness, and yet simultaneously come with mercy and with grace. We ask that exactly the portion and measure needed for each soul individually and us together collectively would now be made known to us as we give our attention to this, your word. Come and speak to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure like many of you, Been to a number of graduation services over the last couple of weeks, a number of end of the school year programs and award ceremonies. I think they're all finished, but I won't be surprised if my wife tells me there's yet another one, because there's always, it seems, another one. They're wonderful to attend, and what a joyous occasion. Um, On Facebook this week, so many pictures lighting up with people holding degrees, holding awards, parents glowing at various levels of excitement as their child moves from one stage to the next or finishes in a culminating way some big moment in their lives. Some of the graduation services that I was able to be a part of this year and end-of-the-year programs were Christian in their focus. They were from Christian schools and from Christian organizations, which meant that at times we sang hymns. And at one of those, this last week, we sang a very beloved Christian hymn, maybe the most beloved, I would argue the most beloved, at least the most well-known within our culture today, that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. You know it very well. We could all sing it right now if we stopped. And, and Greg led us on how to sing Amazing Grace. We would, be, we would be ready. You would know the words. You would even need the music before you. And you would work through the most familiar verses. You probably remember that in the second verse of Amazing Grace, there is this line. It's a beautiful line. I've pondered it long in my own life and its applications. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It's a wonderful line. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, it was also grace my fears relieved. Now that line, that simple line is essentially all we're going to study today. From 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now to say that you think. Can we pray now then and go home? Well no. We're not done with our study of 2 Samuel chapter 6. But the truth that's embedded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Is this. Grace that taught my heart to fear. (laughs) Because there is something to be afraid of. A rightful and holy fear. That this passage should strike for every single one of us. And then there should be a grace that relieves all my fears that we see by the end of this passage. And so I want to look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 under just those two headings. Uh, The the grace that caused my heart to fear and the grace that my fears relieve. So let's start with the grace that taught my heart to fear. This is David. (laughs) He's coming into power after probably 20 years since his anointing of Samuel when he was a little (laughs) shepherd boy. That's a long time to wait for a moment like this. We read in 1 Chronicles earlier in the service the little moment of his establishment as the king of Israel, but this is really his coronation. This is the moment where he comes rightfully into the throne of Israel. And here's what's very important to note about 2 Samuel chapter 6 is that as David comes into his power as the king of Israel, he's not focused on his power. He's focused upon the rightful presence of the Lord in the midst of God's people. That's symbolized in how this entire chapter focuses upon that very unique and mysterious piece of furniture known as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the very centerpiece of Israelite worship, which is why here in this passage we could argue that David's focus is not upon him coming to the throne, but upon God taking his rightful place in worship among God's people. In fact, David is as if he's saying in this passage, I won't take the throne until the Ark of the Covenant's back where it's supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. He's actually in the midst of a reform of worship in this passage. That's what David is focused on. Now, to be able to see that, we've got to understand, what is this Ark of the Covenant? It's a really strange and mysterious thing. At one level, it seems very simple. It's a wood box. It's about three and three quarters feet long. It's about two and quarter feet um, high it's about two and quarter feet depth so it's a little small hope chest think of it as something that sits at the edge of your bed that you're keeping some of your linens in that's essentially the size of what the ark of the covenant is but it's not like any chest that sits at the edge of your bed at least I hope not it's a very very unique spiritually present piece of furniture that God himself is using for a directed purpose it's plated with gold. It's got beautiful molding around. It. It's got two cherubim at the top, solid gold with a space in between that's called the mercy seat. That mercy seat is a picture of God's rule on the earth. The ark of the covenant is God's footstool. It's the place where he manifests his dwelling place, his rule on the earth. And where was it supposed to be located? Well, right in the middle of Israelite worship, in that inner sanctum known as the Holy of Holies. That's where it lived, or that's where it's supposed to live. That's not where it is in our text. And the question might be why not? Well, I want to just simply remind you of 1 Samuel chapter 5. We haven't looked there. You actually will be there pretty soon in your read through the Bible plan where in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we see the people of Israel um, get a little superstitious with the Ark of the Covenant. They decide to take it out of the Holy of Holies because they're going to go in and face their formidable foe, the Philistines, and they're taking it into war because they think if they take the Ark of the Covenant into war in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we will definitely win. And so they take it into war, and instead of really an exercise of faith, it's an exercise in superstition. Kind of a lucky rabbit's foot, a kind of genie in the bottle. If we take this in, no matter what we do, we'll win. God's going to be for us. Who who can be against us? Here they are going in with a, a kind of bravado in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and then they get it handed to them. Utterly destroyed by the Philistine army, and this is when the Ark of the Covenant is stolen, and it's taken by the Philistines. You'll remember, it's a, it's a hilarious story. The Ark of the Covenant's taken in the Temple of Dagon. You remember that as the Philistines put it there as a sign of their might and as a sign of their victory, they submitted the Ark of the Covenant to Dagon, their God, who is an idol. They would wake up every morning and walk into the temple, and where was Dagon? On his face before the Ark of the Covenant. That's curious. They'd pick up Dagon, they'd put him back up, and they'd come in the next morning, he'd be on his face before the Ark of the Covenant, except when they came in the second morning, he didn't have a head or hands any longer. Those were cut off. And they begin to go, This is weird. We need to get rid of this thing. And they sent it to another Philistine city. Was well, they sent it to another Philistine city? You remember what happened? A plague of sickness hit the city because of the Ark of the Covenant's presence. And they go, well, let's send it over to this city. They send it over to another Philistine city, and a plague of sickness sits in them. You remember what they go, Let's send this thing back to Israel. <laughs> they put it on a cart, and they tie some oxen to it, and they get it over to the, immediately, just in the, the territory line of Israel, and they dump it like dead weight at the house of Abinadab. And it's been there for decades until 2 Samuel 6. All right, it's really important that you know that. That the very centerpiece, I want you to imagine this, during the the length of Saul's reign, the very centerpiece of worship in Israel was entirely missing. It's entirely missing. Leviticus 16 describes the day of atonement when the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood of the covenant over the mercy seat to um, satisfy the wrath of God for the judgment of sin against the nation of Israel. And then he would arise out of the holy of holies. He could only go in once a year and then bless the people of God. And what has, that's not happened for decades. David, as he begins the administration of his kingship, he is simultaneously embarking on a reformation of worship. Of restoring to its rightful place God at the very center of the community of Israel. Now that's really what makes this situation so dire, so devastating in many ways because there's so much excitement. Here is the Ark of the Covenant. It's called by the name of the Lord. We're told in verse 2 that it's he who is enthroned above the cherubim. This thing is the embodiment in a very real sense of the presence of God to Israel and God had commanded it to be made. It was him who had done it. Exodus 25. He gives all of the specific instructions. He tells you what to put in it. He tells you how it ought to act. All of the things that ought to happen with it. Those have been violated. And when those are violated, bad things happen. Really bad things happen. But now David's going to do it right. David's going to do it right. And so as he goes up to Jerusalem, he takes the Ark of the Covenant with him. And there's 30,000 men there. We have to assume there are women also present, there are children also. This is a huge throng. This is a major crowd. We're told they're singing, they're dancing, there's lyres, there's tambourines, there's castanets, there's, there's dancers. I want you to imagine. I mean, when you, when you hear 30,000 people, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, that's pretty. 30,000 people. This is a huge throng of people. And they're all excited because David's coming into his power The Ark of the Covenant for the first time in decades is coming back to the Holy of Holies. This is a monumental moment. Will be written in the history books of the people of Israel. And then they get to the threshing floor of Nacar. And we're told that the oxen stumble. And we're told Uzzah, who is one of the sons of Abinadab, he's a Levite. Throws his hand up to steady the Ark of the Covenant, so that it does not fall into the mud. And God, verse 7, anger is kindled against him and he strikes him on the spot and he lies dead beside the Ark of the Covenant. The language is literally God outburst against him or struck out against him. It's actually the same language used in chapter 5 of the way God dealt with the enemies of Philistia. It's a really strong word. What's remarkable is that the same language used against enemies of Philistia is the language that's used against a Levite who seems like a really faithful man, Uzzah, who was only trying to steady the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And yet, there he lies, cold, dead, on the ground. The band stops The tambourines quiet, the dancers quit their singing, and a collective gasp overcomes the crowd. And we read it and we think to ourselves, he was only trying to help. He was only trying to help. Be honest with your own heart as you're reading this text. Is this not unsettling? This is unsettling. This is a man who is a Kohathite, one who is charged within the division of the Levites to guard the holy things, which was the responsibility of the Kohathites specifically to carry the holy things. That was the major role that he as a Kohathite would have had. And yet, this attempt to steady the art was not, obviously, not the kind of help God desired. Why? We're told in verse 7 that the strike down of Uzzah has to do because of his error. That's the language of verse 7. That he has done something in violation... To the clear and prescribed laws of Israel for the way in which a Levite, a Kohathite specifically, must engage with the holy things in the Ark of the Covenant. And so this is where I really ought to come cling with you. I didn't tell you something. At the very beginning, I talked to you about the wood box, I talked to you about the gold plating, I talked to you about the cherubim, I talked about the mercy seat, we talked about all of that, but I didn't tell you about the rings. Oh. On the Ark of the Covenant, on each corner of the Ark of the Covenant were were large gold rings and there were two rods that went through those gold rings made of wood but also gold plated. In Numbers chapter 4 and again in chapter 7 we are told that the Ark of the Covenant is always to be carried by the Kohathites on their shoulders using the bar of wood gold-plated inside the rings in order to carry the Ark of the Covenant as the tent of meeting constantly moved through the wilderness wanderings. They were to carry it on their shoulders. How's it being carried in this text? On a cart pulled by oxen. Where did they get that idea? From Philistia. Philistia had been the first to carry the ark on a cart and it was to get rid of the ark and get it back to Israel since it was plaguing every single city that it was in. And when Israel received it and it lo- probably pulled into that cart at Abinadab's house and sat there for decades for all we know, but we're told in this, in this uh, particular passage that they built a new cart, which sounds very efficient. It makes an Tremendous amount of sense, especially for pragmatic types like North Americans like ourselves. This is going to. This is less effort. This is this is an advance in technology. Is exactly what this is, and yet apparently, it's not the kind of advance God's asked for. It's the kind of advance that actually led to a stumbling oxen, that led to a touch by a coathite of the Ark of the Covenant, which in Numbers chapter 4 we're told they should carry it lest it fall and they touch it and die. Why would they die? (laughs) Verse 2 describes the Ark of the Covenant by the name of the Lord. Now that may not seem like a whole lot at first reading, but that's a really big statement. To call something by the name of the Lord is to invoke the being and the character of God in his fullness. What this means is where the ark is, that's where God is. Uzzah didn't touch a box. Uzzah touched a holy God. And he didn't live to tell the story. You see, in Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 7, those warnings are advanced among the people of Israel, not because God is temperamental, not because God is fickle, not because he's really hard to deal with, but because he knows that as a holy God living within the midst of an unholy people, parameters have to be put around his presence or any time he comes in contact with unrighteousness, we won't live to tell about it. Let me put it in perspective for you. I have, a, I have a friend who is Mr. Hot Sauce. He loves hot sauce. He makes hot sauce. He's got all kinds of peppers. I, I love it with him. We together have a hot sauce making party in the fall. Normally during the second week of NFL playoffs. And somewhere in there we're, we're making hot sauce. and we're, we're enjoying it together. We eat well. It's fantastic. He, he has on his shelf in his home a number of... Ghost peppers. You know what I'm talking about here? This is for real heat. Okay? This is not the little jalapeno thing you get on the salad bar. Okay? This is, this is for real heat. Like, eat one, you might go to the hospital. I mean, that's probably what's going to happen to you. Like, we rush you to the emergency room. And he's got a jar of these sitting on his shelf. And you know you know what's on the jar? It's, it's a skull. <laughs> with, with two bones going by, like the poison symbol, Right? And he has that because, you know why? He's got children, and he's got other people, and he, he, they know it's up high, and it's, well, there it is. Don't, don't, you know, if you breathe it, if you touch it, get on your hands. It's like you can't get it off. It's burning your hand. I mean, very serious heat we're talking about. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that label and warning, is that, is that unkind? Is he being really overreactive? Is he being really restrictive? Temperamental? He's being very gracious and very kind to warn people ahead of time that this is for real. When God says, I want you to carry the Ark of the Covenant on your shoulders lest it fall, you touch it and die, He's not playing. He means it. And He's not being mean or temperamental He's trying to keep you alive. The reason we think it's a small thing is because we have a really small view of who he is. We don't have a vision for his holiness. We don't have a vision for his transcendence. We don't have a vision for his glory. We kind of think he's like Santa Claus in the sky. He's a big man upstairs. He's nothing like the big man upstairs. It's blasphemous. Numbers says very clearly, he is not like a man. That's what it says. And friends, when you read 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's clear, isn't it? He's not like a man. He is not like a man. We ought not trifle with him. He is a holy God who when he gives you commands and he prescribes the path for it, he's not being temperamental. He's trying to keep you alive it's really important for that to settle on us. When R.C. Sproul was asked several decades ago now, so I think it's even probably more important now than it was then, was asked, what truth does this generation need to know more than any other? And without thinking, he said, the holiness of God. And the reason he said that was he believed and he could see a cavalier spirit among the world in relationship with God, but I think what concerned him more than anything among the people of God with regards to their approach of the Lord and what begins to happen when we have a cavalier spirit towards the Lord is Uzzah dies now the reason this is, this is difficult is because David is trying to reform worship I mean let, let's put this in perspective it's almost ironic He's, David's going to do it right this time Saul didn't do it right except he didn't do it right If David really wants to reform worship, God shows him what kind of God he is before he begins to reform worship regarding this God. And he's a God in whom you better know his law. You better pay attention to the truth. You better abide underneath his promises. Because he's a God who can't just be touched, can't be just looked at. It's why even in the moment where I prayed at the beginning of this service where I asked and said, Lord, please send to us your presence. That hits our ears and it goes out of our ears like it's not that big of a deal, doesn't it? Feels like a natural request. It's a good request. You know what I mean by that? I think I know what I mean by that. And then a lot of times I wonder, do I know even what I'm praying? When I ask for the presence of God to come into this place, do you believe the presence of God is here now? He says every time that the word is opened, he is with us. The same presence. The same presence. You go, oh, that's the Old Testament. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira kept things from the Lord and they died on the spot. There are fluke things that happen quote-unquote throughout history to people things. I don't necessarily know the source and the reason behind them all. I do know that some in the, in the early church were told were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and a number were sick and even a few slept, meaning They died. Let's keep in mind who our God is. That's what this passage is telling us. Let's let's give him the holy reverence and fear that he deserves. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And it's why David, I think, in this passage, ultimately we're told he's angry at first and then he's afraid. And he asks this question. Look at this question. He says, verse 9, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? wait just a minute how can the ark of the lord come to me so he says in verse you hear what David's saying how can i dwell with the presence of the lord how can we dwell with the presence of the lord if we we, if we touch the ark and people die and like the band stop and the thirty thousand go home we don't know what to do how can we do this how do we live in the presence of a holy god Twas grace that taught my heart to fear grace my fears relieved. Let's let's look at how the Lord answers that question with David. Now, I think this is really, I found this really funny. I was listening to a pastor friend of mine uh, this week on this very, very passage, and I just, it was wonderful listening to his uh, message on this text, and I just, there's one section that just really stuck out to me, and he really stuck out to him as being very humorous, and I I think it is. I think it's very humorous. Uh, What's interesting is David here in this text, he says, listen, I don't know what to do with this thing called the ark, so we're going to do is park this baby over at Obed-Edom's house for a little while, the Gittite, because we don't, we're not carrying this thing up to Jerusalem anymore. We don't know what to do with it, so Obed-Edom's going to get it for a little while, and he just keeps thinking like, what must that have been like for Obed-Edom? Yeah, Obed-Edom the Gittite, Gittite means a, a resident of Gath. He's a Philistine. He's like, let's go give this back to the Philistine. In a sense, if something like that is kind of happening, it winds up being there for three months, he's almost doing what Saul did. He's almost doing kind of what Saul did here. He's almost, doing, almost, going, almost backtracking history here. But you kind of think of this moment. There's a delegation we're told of David's men who go to Obed Edom's house, and and and, and just think of it. And you know, um, Obed, um, we need to store this thing here for a little while. Well, uh, okay. W- what is this thing? Mm, it, it's it is the it's the uh, it's the Ark of the Covenant. The, the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to store the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah. Well, why do you need to store the Ark of the Covenant? You see, it killed a man. Um, and we're really not sure what to do with it. And so we'd like to store it here in your house for uh, a little while. How long is it going to be here? I have no idea. It could be here a really long time. I hope that it goes okay for you and your family. Where should we park it? I mean, this is the conversation that in some ways lying behind the text. And they do. They they park the the Ark of the Covenant there at Obed-Edom's house. And what's amazing is, you know, you, can, you sit here, I'm thinking, like, I, you know, he's sitting on his mat at night with his wife. You okay? <laughs> yeah. You all right? Yeah. Go check on the kids. You know, like, like what's, what's going on here? This is a scary moment. It's got to be. Um... And yet we're told that as it stays at the house of Obed-Edom, what happens? They're blessed, verse 12. It says in every single way, every member of the household, all the things of Obed-Edom are blessed, verse 12. And it's almost as if it dawns on David at this point that the presence of the Lord, if you're out of accord, with the violation of his law, becomes to you as a curse. But when you're in the presence of the Lord, in accord with who he is and his holiness, there's blessing that ensues. It sounds a lot like the book of Deuteronomy. Obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings Cursing and this this blessing begins to pour into Obed-Edom's house and you see something of a rally of the confidence of David because he says, well, then let's go get it and let's bring it into Jerusalem. Now is the time that is ripe. And we're told in verse 11 that he does this with joy. He does this with gladness. He's overcome in his heart so much so in verse 14 that he dances. And all of the people gather and they bring their castanets and their cymbals and their tambourines back out. And this whole party begins to ensue. And what's quite remarkable is we're told that in verse, um, in verse 14, as he dances before the Lord, we're told that David is wearing a linen ephod. It's very interesting. We're told that this time, verse 13, that they hoist the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. They got the point. They went back and read Numbers 4 and number 7 and went, oh, yeah, we really went wrong there. Let's do it right this time. And we're told that they take six steps. <laughs> they take six steps. No, I, I have to imagine. These are the scariest six steps that these people have taken in a long time. And after six steps, David says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a sacrifice. David wearing the linen ephod, we're told, sacrifices a fattened animal, probably a bull, probably a calf. And as he does so, he dances before the presence of the Lord. And then in verses 17 and 18, we're told that he takes the ark and he puts it in the tent that he has pitched, David has pitched. And he puts it where it's supposed to rest. Where is that? The Holy of Holies. And then he has a number of other burnt offerings and peace offerings that he offers. And then we're told he blesses the people of Israel. Now, this really should kind of blow your mind. We kind of read it and we really, wow, that's fascinating, he's great, he's really rejoicing. Why it should blow your mind is that all of that work is not king work. It's priest work that was clearly prescribed in the book of Leviticus for the priest to do and for the high priest to do and not for a king to do. And yet, David the king is the one that's doing it. And the Lord is blessing it It seems, on the surface, he's stepping out of the cord with what it is that the Lord would call him to do as a king. And yet, it's quite clear that the Lord has anointed him to do this specific work. Why? Well, it seems quite clear that the Lord is bringing together two categories that we saw brought together back in Genesis 14. You'll remember that it was Abraham who was sojourning outside the city of Salem. You remember that? And if you can hear it, Jerusalem it is, is right in the midst of the language that's there in Genesis 14, the city of peace. And it's there that we're told a king who is Melchizedek comes out and he offers a sacrifice because he's a king and he is a priest to the Most High by God and do you know what he does he blesses Abraham and he passes out food to Abraham almost a kind of sacrament to Abraham now when you begin to know 2nd Samuel 6 in light of Genesis 14 all of a sudden some bells begin to go off here is a picture of the ancient rule of the priest king Melchizedek being almost re-inhabited by David in this passage One who has come to rule with both justice, the picture of Uzzah, but one who has come to rule with grace, the picture of blood and sacrifice. One who has come to make justice and mercy kiss. This is how we dwell in the presence of the Lord. Someone who can both simultaneously execute the justice and the judgment of God while also dispensing the grace and the mercy of God. We've reached back to Genesis 14 for the sign of Melchizedek, 2 Samuel 6 with David, but we've got to reach forward to the Lord Jesus Christ because that's where Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the king after the order of the great high priest Melchizedek the eternal order of the one who would come who will be the ruler on high, the one who is the king of all his people who will obey the commandments to their fullest and then become the sacrifice for his people and now today standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven living as the priest for the intercession for all of his people. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the picture of 2 Samuel 6. He is the one who is that king-priest. He is the one who has come to fulfill the place where mercy and justice meet. And here's what's quite remarkable. He does that by, in a very real sense, becoming Uzzah for us. You see, it is God who on the cross breaks out against his own son because his son received the, the charge and the penalty of our sins. And in the moment that his father saw it, he poured out all of his wrath on him and he ripped him to shreds. He broke out against his own son. And in so doing though, that son paid the ultimate penalty for the sins that were charged to him. And when he rose again, he made it very clear that he was going to be the one who would inherit all the power of heaven and earth. That above all names would be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our priest king. After the order of Melchizedek, after the pattern of 2 Samuel 6, because at the very end of this passage, it's quite clear that David is not our priest king, his family's a wreck. Michael is a wreck looking at him disturbed by the lack of decorum of a king and him in a very real sense giving it back to her and saying, oh, you haven't seen nothing yet. Wait till, wait till I really get going next time that we're out there dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. And it's quite clear that as ascendant as this passage becomes with the joy of the Lord, it ends on a sour note that Michael, Michael won't bear any children. Maybe a curse from the Lord, maybe a sign of the distance of the relationship between David and Michael. Who knows? But it's one or the other. But the recognition is this. The son that will be the greater David won't come from her. But it will come from someone. We'll get there. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we trust you, our Holy glorious, unapproachable God because you have been gracious and merciful and opened up for us and approaching through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ who simultaneously fulfilled the ultimate commands of you and received your judgment and becomes for us a place of mercy. Lord, we trust in you. We ask that you would burn this truth into our hearts as we seek to follow you by faith.